We should buy his album. They need to bring back an old record burning party. Remember when all the uh <laughs> when all the radio stations like destroyed the disco albums? Oh, or even rock and roll when mm-hmm. it first started, remember? They had that. Well, we I I know where I can get a steamroller if we need. Oh, good. Yes, like fuck burning. We'll get the steamroll. Was it the Beatles who said you got to buy them to burn them? I think it was think Gloria it... Steinem regarding bras. Uh, I thought you were going to say Gloria Stefan when she got rammed in Scranton but right. on the bus. What? I was going to say, right. Remember, she had that big accident right here in River City. It, right, yeah. And it's the only, it's it's the second biggest crash since the banana truck. 30,000 pounds of bananas. I don't remember that one. That's a song. Uh, was it Harry Chapin that wrote it? I don't remember. But it was a song about a guy losing his brakes coming into Scranton with, and it was there, and he crashed year, like years ago. And bananas just like went everywhere. And whoever this singer was was pulling into Scranton at the time. And he saw the truck just destroyed. And, the, and I guess the driver died. And the song is called 30,000 Pounds of Bananas. It was based on a true event? Yes. Like all good movies are. And TVs. Shows. I want to know who sang 30,000 Pounds of Bananas. All right. You get working on that. All right. Because this is episode 210 of Longbox Heroes After Dark, everybody. Everybody. It's uh, the 11th. In our uh, soon-to-be-named movie club things. And uh, we're going to be discussing the 1984 hit, Johnny Dangerously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. picked by Todd. Did you find your information about your Banana Boat song? Yes, it was Harry Chapin who sang it. Right. So, look it all up and you can listen to it later, Joe. If I cared, I would... Um... Put the song in with this episode, but I ain't doing that. That's a lot of work. Well, it is a lot of work, but, you know, we need to hire an editor for that. We had an editor. We we had two editors Mm -hmm. at different times. So I'm just trying to look this up in regards to our film. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Harry Chapin didn't do the theme song that much, I know. Right. get the information you were looking for? Yes, I have the information I'm looking for. At your very fingertips, if you will? I do. It's actually, Maybe. so this is a lot of good information that I wanted to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this, I, is a, this is a movie picked by Todd for us to discuss right. here. And I will say, uh, Todd, you picked a goodie. It's a, a great movie. I haven't watched this movie in like 10 years. I only remembered bits and pieces of this, and I was glad that I watched it. Mm-hmm. Again, now, I am going to be very critical of this film as we discuss it. What? Well, and you'll you'll see why. Okay. Because it was a bit of failed potential, unfortunately. But let's let's get into some of the the nuts and bolts of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, starring Michael Keaton, uh, Joe Piscopo, and literally uh, like a fantastic cast. Right at that time, man, there were some big stars in there. Heavy hitters. 
I love that, and again, we had talked about it last week, how Dom DeLuise is in for one scene as the Pope, and I think mm-hmm. he's like fourth build. Well, he was he was a big star at that time, and I mean he was a big star. Right. Get it? He was fat. Danny DeVito's in it, Peter Boyle's mm-hmm. in it, uh, Maureen Stapleton's in it, the great Griffin Dunn. Griffin Dunn, where have you gone? Oh, I think he was in something recently. <sighs> That's what I'm looking up. He was in, like, he was like the guy. From, like, 1980 to 85. He was, like, top-notch, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of TV stuff here and there. Nothing real too big. Like, here he is on some TV show called Manhattan. Here he is on, like, an episode of Law & Order. Here he is on some TV show called I Love Dick. Here right. he is on some TV show called Imposters. Uh, you know, nothing too big in the last... Uh, you know, the last couple of years here, but that's okay. Where have you gone? Come back, uh, Griffin Dunn. We, I miss you. No, no films? He was, he was parole board officer in Ocean's 8. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good stuff. I'm trying to see the last... Oh, he was, I don't know how big of a part it was, but definitely Dallas Buyers Club in 2013 was a big movie. I didn't see it, but I know it was a big movie. I have no memory of him being in that movie. He's probably in one scene, as I look at his name, as Dr. Vass. He's uh, probably the one who told uh, Matthew McConaughey that he had the sick. Okay. I've never seen uh, Bryce Dallas Howard Buyers Club. Now, so, directed by the great Amy Heckerling. Really? Yes. So, Amy Heckerling, listen to her credits. I'm going to... Writing and directing, okay? Mm-hmm. Writing and directing. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Wow. Okay. National Lampoon's European Vacation. Uh, the weakest of the ones. Okay. okay. Look Who's Talking and Look Who's Talking too. Whoa. And Look Who's... Oh, she just produced Look Who's Talking Now. Right. And then and Clueless. That was a big movie. Right. Night at the Roxbury. She Again, she had a lot of big... It's. Mm-hmm. And then she was involved with the TV shows spun off of your Look Who's Talking, your Cluelesses, and your Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But let's not talk about those. Right, right. Now, also this movie, Todd, uh, 1984 came out at the end of 1984. It was This was a Christmas weekend release. Right. It's li- And next year will be the 35th anniversary. So I'm hoping it gets a steel box Blu-ray because of us. Listen, we did it for Dragnet. We're going to do it for Repossessed. We're doing <laughs> it for Johnny Dangerously. Mm-hmm. So listen to listen to what else opened up uh, this <laughs> same weekend as Johnny Dangerously, right? I'm a f- sure a few small films. Okay. A reissue of Pinocchio, which was okay. what Disney used to do back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Flamingo Kid. Okay. Uh, which is one of, if not the, for, we've dis- I think we've discussed it on the show. Uh, it was the first movie to be announced to have a PG-13 rating, but mm-hmm. it wasn't the first one to be released because it got delayed. Right. Like, and everybody thinks it was uh, Temple of Doom, right? But it's actually Red Dawn. Right. So it's like Red, it was originally, Flamingo Kid was supposed to be the first PG-13 movie, gets delayed to Christmas time, Red Dawn beats the punch, Indian Jones, Temple of Doom, and then these two movies come out the same weekend. Uh, Mickey and Maude, mm-hmm. 
Mickey and Maude, I remember, because there's a wrestling subplot in it. Oh, God. And 1985 me watching a scene where Andre the Giant and Big John Stud, bitter rivals, are palling around in the locker room. <laughs> K-fabe shattered, Todd. <laughs> Were you ever the same after that? I still believe for like another eight years. <laughs> but Johnny Dangerously was the big release of the weekend, but also that weekend was Break into Electric Boogaloo. Oh my goodness, which is probably one of the most parodied, parodied names in the history, like just everywhere. I don't know how many times, anytime you say two uh, to anything, it's something, something two, you, I think you're legally obligated to act, add electric boogaloo. I, now I, bear in mind, I did not look this information up prior to us recording, but I just had to explain that joke to my <laughs> kid today because he has a book that's called Dragon's Love Tacos 2, the sequel. Right, Electric Boogaloo. And I, he goes, Dragon's Love Tacos 2, and I say Electric Boogaloo. It's a knee-jerk reaction. And he goes, what are you talking about? So I had to explain it to him. See, son, back in the early 80s, there was a thing called breakdancing. And, oh my, I don't know, I think it was all the way back in the 30s, though, too, Joe. Well, we'll get into that. Exactly. Go ahead. Okay. So Johnny Dangerously, I would say of that list of movies, uh, Johnny Dangerously far and away the best of the best of the bunch. Right. So movie starts off. Uh, Johnny Kelly, Johnny Dangerously, uh, Michael Keaton. I'll probably just call him Michael Keaton a bunch during the course of this this uh, discussion. Right. Because he's Michael Keaton is uh, doing some gags because he runs a pet shop or he works at a pet shop or he's also a waiter. It's a little unclear. Right. He owns the pet shop, Joe. Right. But he also poses as a waiter to steal food from the restaurant that's in the back of the pet shop? I guess. He's just bringing the pet's food as a waiter. It's right. a gag, Joe. You're overthinking it. Okay. I'm not overthinking it. I'm just kind of laying the groundwork for how a lot of the gags in this film are going to go. Okay. Uh, right. And I know you're going to do that, but to me, yes. the best way to describe it is... This John, Johnny Dangerously is a bit of a watered down, like repossessed for for gangster movies. You know, it's that naked gun, but like like walked back, like okay, uh, with some big naked gun jokes in it. See, my and again, we're we're kind of getting this out of the way up front since you're bringing it up. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem that I have with this movie is is that they don't commit. Okay. They'll, they'll, like, sometimes the gags will be super subtle, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like in a blink and you'll miss it sort of way. Right. There's one that I want to talk about to see if you got later on, but and go ahead. And there's other gags where they just drag it out and out and out. And, like, I get it. I'm like, okay, I get where they're going. Mm -hmm. And they get there and it's funny, but it's, like, such a tonal shift. Like, you're like, here's a whole bunch of subtle gags. Mm -hmm. Here's a little bit more overt of a gag, and then you have a very long, drawn-out gag. The pacing of the gags just fell off. Right. If they just played it subtly the whole time, I think it would have worked better. Or if they went over the top the whole time, it would have worked better. The tone of the gags were just kind of all over the place, mm -hmm. and I just felt as though the comedy of it, while funny, it didn't find its right rhythm. 
I'll give you a little bit of that, but I like that it's that it's that it was all over the place. I had no problem. I mean, oh, no, like I just rolled. I, I enjoy it, but again, it's a movie to me that's like an eight. That if they committed and they kind of found their footing and their tone of it, this could mm-hmm. have been like a solid nine. Okay, I because I have to ask, and I know we haven't even got into the movie yet. Take away all the gags, right? No matter which way they went, whether they com- where they went subtly or they went over the top for the whole way. The acting has to stay the same, right? Acting has to stay the same. Okay, because I just want to know, because I want to know if you were saying the acting was too much all no. over the place too, because I love the way they like did the, 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 the gangster patter, but in a, like a, a weird comedic way. So that's, I just wanted to know. Right. I thought the performances were great. The material, like Michael Keaton is a star in this movie. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I don't know where this, you know, I could look because I have it right here at my fingertips. Right. We'll do that at the end, I guess. Well, again, I have it right here. Okay, I don't know. Go ahead. Sorry. It's all right. Hang on. Let me see. Two seconds. Right. It's right there. You have it right right there. So it's Night Shift, Mr. Mom, this, Gung Ho, right? Mm -hmm. And then he starts doing a couple serious films, and then he goes into Beetlejuice, Clean and Sober, another serious film, and Batman. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're talking Night Shift, Mr. Mom, this, and Gung Ho. That's four, like solid in-the-park home run movies. He was huge all those years. Right. And, again, this if this movie was just a little bit more even, a little bit more digestible to John Q. Public, mm-hmm. I think this could have been, like, a smash sensation that people talk about today still. I Not think just me the- and you. I mean, everybody. Right. I think the world wasn't ready for Johnny Dangerously, personally. That's what I think. Well, I, okay. It's very airplane and it's very Naked Gun, and it comes out right in the middle of those two films. Where I think it walks the line perfectly. But anyway. Well, no, 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 no. It, it walks the line perfectly, but it was released in between those two films is what I'm saying. Oh, okay. If it was released a little bit closer to Airplane or a little bit closer to Naked Gun... This movie very easily could have taken the place in most people's minds of an airplane or of a naked gun. You get what I mean? Yes. Right. It's just, it came out at the wrong time. Okay. And especially when uh, Keaton was doing more mainstream, like Mr. Mom, like that, this is the like cornball zany of, like this is, what would you say, like uh, Keaton dialed up to 10. Do you know what I mean? Like where Mr. Mom, he's doing like the the same characters that he does, like and the mannerisms, but like Mr. Mom, Gung Ho, are, are more seated in like reality for comedy. Well, it's so not even that. Like, he's the same character pretty much. Right, he's like the fast talking. You know what I mean? Like the same thing that I give someone like Ryan Reynolds shit for. Mm-hmm. Michael Keaton does it in kind of a lovable, kind of self-effacing way in those other movies. Right. Where as much as he gets funny stuff to do, he's kind of the straight man in this movie. Yeah, a lot of times he's just like, what the fuck's going on? You right. know what I mean? Like, he, he gets to be the impetus for like why a gag happens, mm-hmm. but he's pretty much the one who all the gags kind of take place around him. Right. Um... Okay, so back to the actual film itself. We're all over the place, but that's what this movie's going to be. Right. So uh, he's feeding the feeding the animals the food that he stole from the restaurant that's in the back of the uh, 
the pet shop. And he has commentary conversations with each of the animals that he's feeding things to. And again, they telegraph the gag, but it was a good gag that he says to one of the animals, like, oh, I was going to get you this, but I think you'd like this better. That's the only one that he leaves the door open for, and the animal throws the food back out. Right. Good gag. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. That is telling you and the audience what sort of, like, I think that sets the tone for what this movie's going to be. See, I'm going to jump you one more. Okay. Is I think it tells you what the movie's going to be when they put out the numbers for the year. What year it is. Okay. And it's like, oh, here's the, the you know, the digital, like, numbers. It's 19, what, like, 29, maybe? 1930. 1930. And, the, you know, the car drives behind the numbers. And then the next scene, a Model T comes in and hits styrofoam, uh, styrofoam 1930. And I think right there, beautifully, you have immediately set the tone of the movie you are about to see. Okay. In my opinion. And I forget the order... I, w I forgot that Weird Al did the opening theme for this. Which is a fantastic song, by the way. Which was a pleasant surprise. Right. Uh, again, a, a rare non-parody Weird Al song. And mm -hmm. it's not a ton of comedy, but it gets the, again, also gets the tone of the film across to you. Right. With the beautiful 80s, like, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, fonts and stuff like that with the weird deco colors and right. everything. So he's working at the thing, uh, pet shop. A kid comes in and tries to steal a dog by putting it under his vest. Mm -hmm. Because, in my opinion, I love the fact that in, in in like just after the depression, you have to you have to shoplift a dog. You can't find one on the streets in New York. <laughs> so uh, he gets busted because uh, Michael Keaton has an early warning system, <laughs> which was you know kind of I guess at the time this is when stuff at department stores were being tagged with things, so people couldn't steal them. Right. But he's tagged the dogs. Mm hmm So people can't steal them. You would think that alone would make him a millionaire, that he invented that technology in 1930. Sure. But alas, he tells this kid the story of how crime doesn't pay. Or does it? <laughs> it doesn't. Or does it? That's a little... <laughs> it, it, the plot's a bit shaky. <laughs> or rock solid. Oh, my, my goodness. So... We flash back to an indeterminate amount of time when uh, Michael Keaton himself is a young man, and he's delivering newspapers. Mm -hmm. And then he gets into a scuffle with young Joe Piscopo. And yep, they, Mr. Vermin. Right, Danny Vermin. And they fight over the street corner of where they're going to be peddling their newspapers. Uh, Peter Boyle, who is the mobster of the day, sees this. And uh, says to young Michael Keaton, oh, you know, I, I, I need a guy like you in my thing. And Michael Keaton's like, no, no, thank you. You know, if my mom found out I was involved in anything unsavory, she'd be, it'd kill her, right? Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the apartment where uh, him and the brother live. And now this is one of those things where it was like a subtle gag and they could have left it as such. So the brother, young Griffin Dunn, is studying to be a lawyer, right? So there's your plot of the movie, okay? If you don't see it coming down the freeway <laughs> here, you know, when it comes up later in the movie, they really hammer all this stuff home, okay? Mm -hmm. So he's studying to be a lawyer. Uh, Mom is working hard, ironing shirts and cleaning shirts. And on the <laughs> table is just a picture of a guy in a classic prison outfit in an electric chair, right? 
Yeah. It's very clear that that's a picture of their father. They don't need to say anything about it. That is funny enough. But then mm-hmm. they do say something about it. And, like, you, you took your joke down from a 9 to an 8 by just, like, mentioning it, okay? Mm-hmm. But then they salvage it. So it just so happens, uh, so Peter Boyle, or Peter Boyle is uh, uh trying to hire young Michael Keaton, offer him 50 bucks to do a job, and then uh, as he's leaving or going to the apartment, a doctor's coming down, whatever's wrong with the mother... Just so happens that it'll, to fix her, it'll be forty nine ninety five, And he's like, oh, where am I going to come up with that money, right? Mm-hmm. So he goes upstairs, talking to the mom, and, and they, uh, you know, I'd mentioned before about the gag about the dad and the electric chair and everything else, and then they call attention to it. This gag, where they bring up that the mom, played by Maureen Stapleton, who at the time was 60 years old, they make the <laughs> gag that she's going to be turning 30 soon. Mm-hmm. That's a great gag. And they she's like, oh, up- you're going to... Be they, 29 this week. And she's right. like, God, I only hope I can make it to 30. Right. They bring it up one time. There's your gag. And you remember that the entire time of the movie. They don't need to beat you over the head like, oh, let's have a birthday party for, uh, da, 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 you know, all that mm-hmm. sort of shit. Right? Right. It puts you right in line where with everything needs to be. So uh, Johnny goes back down. And he decides that he's going to help them out. And all it is is they're going to... Uh, Maroney's, the, the competing gangster in town's, uh, casino, right? And they all get frisked and they can't bring guns in. And the gimmick is, is that young Michael Keaton as a paper boy is gonna smuggle guns in, in, in the newspapers and give them to everybody that's there, right? Which is actually a pretty decent plan. Right, which is a really good plan. Uh, they get the, they get the, uh, stick up on Maroney's guys, and these are gangsters with a heart of gold. They're kinda like Robin Hood in the fact that they steal from only bad people, and then once a year they do something nice for the community. It's mm-hmm. unclear of what it is. We do see a scene of Peter Boyle wrapping gifts, <laughs> but it's really unclear as to what they do for the community. Now, the other thing is, the gag with, uh, Maroney is, he's some sort of foreign person? Right. And he says lots of swears, but he says them wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that's a gag that has legs, and they beat that one into the ground the perfect amount of time. I agree. So that one worked out well, I think, as that one goes. But we'll get back to him a little bit later on. So uh, Maroney's gang is chasing young Michael Keaton, who is then replaced by an actor who does a bunch of gymnastics. For, mm-hmm. like, five minutes. We could have trimmed that scene down a little bit. What? I love Johnny Jim Cotta dangerously. <sighs> Again, I would assume that this film, specifically this scene, was the inspiration for the film Jim Cotta. Right, which I hope is the, the 12th movie in the series, but go ahead. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, at this point... uh Johnny says, no, this is just the one job I'm going to do. I got the money for my mom's one operation, and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. Then it turns out she needs yet another operation. So he's just right back into it, into a life of crime. Right, but at this point, he's actually Michael Keaton. Right. So they, like, jump forward. And I like the fact that he's the aw shucks Johnny Kelly at this point. Yeah. He's like, because they're like, oh, your mom needs a, a, a spit gland transplant. 
well, how much is that going to cost me? And he's like a thousand, a nineteen. Like it's always like one thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety five cents this week only. And he's like, well, all right, go ahead and do it. I'll get the money somehow. It will be nice to see mom spit again. Yeah. Oh, and this is the scene what we referenced before when we were talking about breaking to electric boogaloo, where right. Johnny and his and his best gal are sitting in the stairwell listening mm-hmm. to old timey music, and then Johnny starts doing like. Kind of like the old Char- time, he's doing the Charleston. <laughs> yeah. And then he just breaks down into like a scene of breakdancing. Now again, the gymnastic scene went on a little bit too long. The breakdancing scene, perfect amount of time. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my whole thing about it. So many of the gags hit, and then there's, for every gag that hits, there's another gag that just overstays its welcome a little bit. Right. So Johnny joins up with the gang, and everything's great, right? Uh, they're still at war with um, Maroney's gang. Now, right. oh, so and also, um, it's just assumed that Johnny is all Johnny. Michael Keaton is just a ladies' man as well. Mm-hmm. Lot of lot of scantily dressed women in this movie. Yes, just a few. Just a few. No, no nudity, but about right. as close as you're gonna get. Well, at one point, yes. Well, again, that's, you know, like when Dennis Franz showed his ass on a NYPD Blue sort of thing. <laughs> right. But again, that was a gag of the time in the early 80s when, you know, a man's ass would be a joke, you know? It's still, mine still is. Right. So, uh, Marilu Henner shows up. She's like the new, uh, you know, torch song girl at the club. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Johnny's immediately smitten with her because all the other girls are throwing themselves. Uh, Adam, she's the one who's playing a little hard to get. They have a fun little gag with him uh, giving her her ca- giving her his card mm-hmm. and slipping it into the only pocket that she has available, which is right on her breast. Right. Oh, boy. That wouldn't fly today, Todd. I'll tell you that much. No. And Mary Lou Henner. Woohoo! She was at the she was flying high in this film, Todd. She was at the height of her powers. Do you know what Mary Lou Henner was doing the day man landed on the moon? What was she doing? Do you know that she has one of those like eidetic memories? No. Like literally she's one of those like they they study her and like there's like I don't know maybe two dozen people like that that they know of where she can pretty much do every day of her life what happened. And she was on an, it's on YouTube, I think, where she was on Bob Costas, like an episode of Bob Costas. And he's like, oh, well, you have this? She's like, yeah. And like, you know, they study us. And I could like, I remember most of like my days, like viv, like vividly. I can tell you what I was wearing, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, really? He's like, yeah. She's like, well, what were you doing? Like, you know, I forget. It was July, whatever, 1969. And she's like, why did you ask me that? And he's like. Well, just because the day man landed on the moon, and she's like, it was the day I lost my virginity. And he's like, really? And she's, and she's sitting there explaining like how she can remember everything. And by the way, just so you know, it was standing up in the shower, is what she said. Oh, there so, you go. Beautiful. But it's, I found that interesting. And later on, years later, I saw that on 60 Minutes, like her doing an interview, like still talking about it. There's a, uh, like a panel of like 12 people that go and they, you know, they study them and everything. And I just found that fascinating. And that must be great for memorizing your lines when you're an actor. Oh, absolutely. Mm hmm. So, but go ahead. So I just thought you'd fi- find that fascinating. I'm surprised I didn't know that. Right. 
So uh, then that night at the club, uh, it's revealed that she, uh, or no, she does her big number, of course, and that she wants to live dangerously. But that's also the night that uh, Michael Keaton is named that he's going to take over for Peter Boyle. Right. By the way, great song, I Want to Live Dangerously, as far as I'm concerned. Like a legit, like that could have yes. been a legit, like in a film in the, in the, you know, in the uh, the Prohibition time. Right. And they do a lot of gags with it, and the gags are perfect with that sort of thing and those sort of scenes and movies. Mm-hmm. So, uh, now I thought, again, not having seen this movie in a while, I thought a good thing would be that she was uh, sent by Maroney. Right. To try to entrap Johnny. Like, that's what I was thinking, but I, I think everything played out better that she wasn't. You know, that, that yeah. she was on the up and up, if you will. Right. So, also around this time, uh, everything's going great for Johnny, but his brother, Griffin Dunn, wants to drop out of law school. Right. And why does he want to drop out of law school, Joe? Because he wants to get laid. Oh, what can't you say in front of your mother? <laughs> that you want to get laid? Mom, a boom, ba boom, which is one of my favorite jokes, and we used to do that all the time when anybody was talking about getting laid back in the day. Oh, so he goes to Johnny, and they do a bunch of gags with all the previously mentioned scantily clad women, and uh, Johnny shows his brother a educational video that he has set up in his bedroom on a film strip, right. In 1930, or whatever the hell this is, the Roaring Twenties, I guess, of your testes and you, was it? Right. And this, to me, is the most confusing part of the movie. Oh, this is? Yes, this here. Because I'm not sure what the It sends the wrong message, is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, I wasn't sure what the movie was trying. The movie within a movie, which I understand is art, I didn't know what it was trying to convey. Because... It seemed that if you had sex, your testes would swell up and explode. But to me, that would be what would happen if you didn't have sex. I don't know. It just seemed very disjointed to me. Right. Now, I'll give the film a little bit of leeway and say that Johnny, with his vast wealth and power, was able to have this fake film strip made to trick his brother. Mm -hmm. But even that's me giving the film a little bit too much credit. Well, he did say earlier in the day to meet his – early at the day to meet him at his house at 10 o'clock at night. So he had the full time to set up the projector at least. They established that. Now, the film being made, I don't know. So Anything can happen to the fantastic world of this film, right? Exactly. So while this is going on, there's an attempt made on Peter O'Boyle's life where they blow up uh, – they try to blow him up in the toilet. Right. And then there's a gag that goes on too long where Peter O'Boyle is, or P- I keep saying Peter O'Boyle, but Peter Boyle is holding the, 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 I guess the handle from the toilet. Yeah, in the old days they had the above, ha- like, chain handles. Right, and he thinks it's his dick. His dork, he says. His dork, right. It's a PG-13 movie. We get one fuck a little bit later on, but that's about it. <laughs> the star of the movie gets the F-bomb. Right. Uh, so, he he thinks it's his dick, and that goes on way too long. That bit, I will admit, goes maybe 
maybe eight, nine seconds too long. Right. And I can only imagine on the set in 1984, 83, when they were making this movie, they were cracking up making that scene. Like, this is a killer scene. We got to make this longer. How could we make him talking about his dork go on more and more? Right. That's the scene I would trim. One of the, one of the few scenes I would trim. I'll even give you the, the acrobat scene there. Cause the, the acrobat scene actually has a payoff later in the film. Right. So also it's around this time that they bring some new people on to the, uh, the mob. <laughs> and one of them is the aforementioned Danny Vermin. Right. Uh, played by, uh, Master Thespian Joe Piscopo. <laughs> um, and he may have the best prop in the whole film. His upper lip? Yes. He has a he has a Legends of Tomorrow esque mustache in this movie. Oh my goodness. Where's the episode of Legend of Tomorrow where they go to this era? They were just well, we talked about it this week, where they were just in Paris in the Roaring Twenties. Why couldn't they have just turned the wave rider a little bit left and ended up in this movie? In New York during Johnny Dangerously's time. And they do it like, uh, where they just kind of rotoscope everyone into existing footage of Johnny Dangerously. <laughs> All how, like, Back to the Future. Right, right. Oh, no, they're saving that for when they do it with Back to the Future for the season finale this year on Legend of Tomorrow. Right, right. But anyway, uh, it's at this point now, what, 45 minutes into the movie, we're introduced <laughs> to the real, I guess, uh, antagonist of the film and Joe Piscopo. <laughs> Right. Because Maroney is kind of just like a goof sort of thing. Right. And, uh, you know, he even gets, like, written off, like, almost completely off screen when uh, Michael Keaton takes over the mob. Like, he's this big deal. He sent, like, he's trying to blow up Peter Boyle. He sends the, the robot of himself over to try to blow everyone up with the Tommy gun. And then that whole plot thread of the mob war is just, like, resolved off screen. But it's an important, uh, it's the fact that the equal to Johnny Dangerously gets taken down by his brother, the DA. Mm-hmm. So he could easily take Johnny down too. That, that's an established, and put him, take him, well obviously Maroney was foreign, so he gets deported to Sweden, but he's not from, he's, he stays, says he's not from Sweden. Oh. Which the newspaper gags are fantastic. In and that's another thing I wanted to mention. The newspaper gags were not every paper had like 17 gags. Right. It was just a lot of times the, the, the headline was the gag. Maybe right. one other one. And that's and that's sometimes all you need, except for the best one, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Right. So um, we we mentioned, of course, Griffin Dunn graduates from law school and he becomes the DA. But there's another set of gags that I need to mention with the mother again, right? Okay. So she she wants to get a picture of her boys, and she's going into her purse to get her camera, right? I love this gag. So she's going through her purse, digging out all the shit, and she's handing it to Griffin Dunn's to be wife. Fiance, yes. Fiance. Well, that's... And she's like, handed her this, handed her that, handing her a vibrator, handing her something else. The first two things were a steak, the second thing was a wig, and the third was her vibrator. Right. Again, all great gags. Right. So then that gag gets paid off that she pulls out, like, the old-timey giant box camera. Mm-hmm. But it's actually where she hides her booze. Right. 
again, a good gag, but you haven't set her up as an alcoholic or someone who drinks, and she clearly says, I want to get my camera so I can take a picture of my boys, and then in the next scene, she's using the camera to hide her booze. It's an Irish stereotype, It's Joe. uneven. It's uneven, Todd. Right, but then she offers it to her son, uh, the DA, what's the son's name? There's, Griffin uh, Dunn. Uh, Griffin Dunn. And Griffin Dunn says, because he's the straight in the movie. He's straight edge in this show. Right. And that doesn't and he's mean like, he's better than me. But he, he is better than all of us. But he, he's like, oh, but drinking is illegal. And then that's when she, when, uh, she drops a Billy Barty on him. He's like, like, what are you? Don't be a faggot. And I was like, oh my god, Billy, you're stealing Billy's gimmick. <laughs> Wasn't there? Oh no, that's the 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 maid, the the uh, the, the the maid woman a little bit later on. So Maroney's gone, got taken down by Griffin Dunn, the DA. Johnny dangerously is in charge, but now Griffin Dunn wants to take down all crime. But right. the problem is. No, Griffin Dunn's the assistant DA. The DA is Danny DeVito. Right. This now, is another thing that will come to a little bit later on with Danny DeVito. I just want to say, though, when he meets Danny DeVito, because he's like, he comes into his first day of work, and he's like, hey, everybody. And they have all the people who are just like, like a, like a Monday in, on an office. They all just hate being there. And he comes, like, striding in. Good day. We're ready to fight crime. And he walks into Danny DeVito's office. Did you see the the first gag that's there? Remind me. The two feet under the desk, he's getting a blowjob. <laughs> now, see, no, I didn't even notice that. Again, it, subtle. If you go back and watch that scene, Griffin bursts into the office. Danny DeVito's behind the desk, and you see two feet with high heels on sticking out from under the desk, and they slide like in under the desk as he stands up come, and comes running around to Griffin. I fucking cracked up. I'm like, I've watched this movie and I remember all the like once jokes, the, you know, the, the Maroney jokes. I never remember that. And I was like, holy shit. That's such a subtle gag, such a subtle gag. And I'm like, and you didn't even pick up on it. You know what I mean? Fantastic. Right. But that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like gags like that. Now, and, and I just have it pulled up right now as well. Mm-hmm. So in the room, when uh, Griffin Dunn walks in, there's, you know, all the people there are like, oh, Mondays, whatever. And then randomly, there's a boxer there. <laughs> really? Yes, just randomly there's a guy, like, in a boxing robe with boxing <laughs> gloves. Right. He's guess he's there to fight crime, Joe. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Now, again, see- so, again, we're have to get, we're going to have to come back to this with uh, Danny DeVito and the woman on the – the woman under the desk, mind you. Again, great gag. Didn't even notice it. Those are the types of subtle gags that this movie is jam-packed with. And if this was just a completely straight movie, and it was just full of gags just like that, mm-hmm. this movie would have been one of the most talked about movies of all time. Did you see it now, though, what yes. I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have, I have it pulled up now. And that's the oh. thing. They don't even do a thing where they go back to it or revisit it or, like, Danny DeVito's like, oh, where was I? Or anything like that, you know? Right. It was just bang, and it's gone. It's like... Perfect. To me, that is like, that's an Easter egg gag right there. But go ahead. Okay. So again, we're kind of all over the place with the movie, but that's fine. You know, it is, sure. it is, it is what it is. Um, 
you know, a lot of the big gag from, I guess, the uh, trailers and the commercials from this was the Joe Piscovo character, like, my so-and-so did blank to me once, once, right? Mm-hmm. So that happens, like, three times, but then there's, like, no payoff for it. Like, he never gets, like, any sort of, like, there's no payoff to that joke. Do you know what I mean? I- I thought it was he doesn't get to, he doesn't get to finish the last one as he gets taken off to jail. Eh, that's a little weak. It is weak, but the thing that he excels at is, and there's only two gags and they don't overuse it, is that he has an 88 Magnum. Eh, it's double the size of a 44, sure. Right, but I love the line. It's still one of my favorite lines when he's like, "I have a 40, I have an 88 Magnum." It shoots through schools. <laughs> Try that joke today, Joe. Oh. So anyway, after this, um, you know, there's still the mystery of who Johnny Dangerously is. Right. And there's the newspaper gag of who the the uh, police composite <laughs> sketch of who Johnny Dangerously is. Yes. And it's an artist depiction of Stallone from the first Rocky movie. It is. It's because I was like, holy shit, I forgot that joke. Right. Too. And again, great joke. Right. Right. Now, I, I kind of keep shitting on this movie for, like, some of the jokes are subtle, and they, they're great, and some of the jokes go on a little bit too long, and they're not great. Where a joke goes on too long, completely out of place, but I 100% love, right. is when Danny DeVito has Griffin Dunn come over to his house for dinner. Right. And then he kind of, te- like, you know, he kind of tells him that he has to play ball. Right. And how does he do this, Todd? With a showcase showdown sort of <laughs> set up from a game show of the era called Play Ball with a right. giant neon light and Griffin Dunn seems into it and he's like, We're gonna give you an oat, we're gonna give you an oven, we're gonna give you a boat that's named after you. We got this sexy dame here with the fur and diamonds on that she's gonna Whatchamacallit, and every cutaway shot to Griffin, and I love the scene. Danny DeVito's great in it. It's such a goofy premise to be in a movie like this. Mm-hmm. And, like, the, their palatial state is what, the Lincoln, uh, the Lincoln <laughs> Memorial, I think? <laughs> yeah, it's his house. Yeah, yes. that's gonna be your house. You're gonna live in the Lincoln Memorial, right? <laughs> right. And the whole time, every time he shows him something, they cut away to Griffin Dunn, and Griffin Dunn's reaction shot is, I'm about this, I'm about this, I'm about this, and then all of a sudden, Griffin Dunn is like, no sir, I refuse to do this, even though every cutaway shot is a reaction of positivity toward what's going on. You know what I mean there? He's excited for the prizes, but then he realizes he has to play ball, Joe. I guess. But I do love that's one of the things about this is Griffin's facial expressions all through this movie. Like he plays the hapless, over the top, like lug nuts, um, like amazingly. And th- that's one of the like payoffs for it. Right. So Danny DeVito calls Johnny dangerously to let him know how it goes, but Joe Piscopo picks up the phone, <laughs> uses a fake voice to trick Danny DeVito, and says, Jane- "Okay, kill him." No problem, we already have that worked out. They cut the brakes on Griffin Dunn's car. A Jay Moore-esque impression of Johnny Danger. (laughs) I think Jay Moore might be better than the impression that he did. So Griffin Dunn's in a full body cast, Mm -hmm. and he's in a room with another guy in a full body cast, so they write uh, his name on uh, on the, uh, the body cast so they know who it is, okay? So Johnny Dangerously finds out that Danny DeVito set this up, so he's like, gonna ha- he's gonna have Danny DeVito taken care of. Now, 
We established earlier in the film that Danny DeVito was getting a blowjob from a woman under his desk. Right. When he and Michael Keaton go out to dinner, he's like hitting on Michael Keaton and like giving him like lovey eyes. And it's really strange. Like it's out of character for what they've established as the Danny DeVito character so far, even further. Like we talked about it a little bit with uh, Doctor Who this week where the King James character is kind of played ambiguous from Jump Street, where all of a sudden, just for this scene, for no real reason, they Danny DeVito decides to play this character as, like, kind of quasi-gay. And it's it, it, it doesn't fit. Right. I, I, again, that, it was like, I'm like, what's going on here? Like, we're, like is there going to be some sort of payoff for this? No. Uh, Michael Keaton gives him a red smoking jacket then leaves, and then a bull crashes through the restaurant and gores Danny DeVito as he tries to cover himself up with the said smoking jacket. Well, don't you get why what happens? Yes, because of course, when you hold up a red cape or red anything in front of a bull, a bull is going to charge. Right, but it's also a popular commercial at the time. Oh, I was unaware of that. It's a Schlitz beer commercial for a malt beer. Oh, boy. That, that's what, And literally, they use... The scene of the bull busting through the wall from the commercial. If you go look up like Schlitz malt <laughs> bull commercial. So when he says, he's like, he's, he's like, what are we drinking? He's like, read the label and he leaves. He says the name of the beer and in the commercial, a bull comes through the wall. Jesus and, Christ. Right. So Completely it's like lost on me, Todd. It was lost on me till I looked it up online because I knew it had to be something. So, yes, if you look up Schlitz commercials, there's bulls running through the walls. Mm -hmm. If you read the label of the beer. Okay. So also just as a side note, we have a gag uh, with the newspaper, of course, that the DA gets killed. And the old man who runs the newsstand, played by Ray Walston, a.k.a. My Favorite Martian, Mm -hmm. is an old blind man. And the gag runs where the person comes, delivers the the bundle of papers, it hits him in the head, and he gets his vision back. Mm -hmm. Next time it happens, typically the gag would be he loses sight again. But no, this time now he's deaf. Right. And then I forget what the third one was. The third one is he gets hit again. He's like, oh, I'm hit. I can still see and I can hear. But who am I? <laughs> so it ends with he can see and he can hear. But he has amnesia. And that that's the last we see of Ray Walton. Right. So then we go to where Johnny lives, I guess, in a condo for the other mobsters of the day. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a good gag as well, where we get to see the mailboxes of the other folks who live at Gangster Arms. Right. Legs and Shirley Diamond, Pretty Boy and Pretty Girl Floyd, <laughs> right. Alan Cindy Capone, and then Johnny Dangerously, of course, is just by himself. So then there's the gag about him and him and the uh, the white or Mary Lou Hanner talking about what they're going to do with their lives, and then the aforementioned Mrs. Capone comes over, as you would do back in the day in a sitcom, to borrow a cup of bullets. Right. But they're running low on bullets, apparently, and he's very short with Miss Capone. Right, because work is getting to him, Joe. Right. So they're like, all right, we're going to talk about this later because the brother's now getting married to the woman, 
you know, he's a successful DA, everything's going good, the hunt for Johnny Dangerously is on, but Joe Piscopo knows there's something up, so he tails Johnny there, and this is when Johnny, or Joe Piscopo discovers that Michael Keaton is the brother of the DA, and that neither one of them know, you know, or like, you know, that uh, Griffin Dunn doesn't know that his brother is Johnny Dangerously. Right, and it's because Griffin Dunn is getting married finally to his fiance, and when he does, now he can have sex with her, Joe. Right, takes her to the janitor's closet, they're about to get down to business, and Joe Piscopo walks by, says loudly, <laughs> twice, right, that his brother is Johnny Dangerously, he comes running out, pants down around his ankles, then the janitor walks in because the woman, the, the wife is now just gonna still lay there. Of course, she's screaming. That's it, right? And the janitor comes in and says, "Oh Lord, my prayers have been answered." Yes, in a non-racist way at all. And again, that's something that's never followed up on or never acknowledged again because the next time we see her, her and Griffin Dunn are just together and lovely. Right. That that's where the naked gun esque comes in. I think a, f- a better gag would have been have the guy not say anything. He just walks in there, and then that's the gag. Well, I don't know. Doesn't uh, I guess? I, I'm not Amy Heckerling. I don't. I don't know how to make a movie. Right. So the jig is up. Uh, Griffin Dunn knows Johnny Dangerously is his brother. So now Johnny goes back to the where the gangsters live, and everyone's smoking. And the, the room is filled with a haze of smoke. Wait a minute, you, you forgot one thing. Oh, what did I forget? Two, well, two things. One is when uh, at the gangster arms that they start talking about shelf paper, that they just want to have a regular life together, Mary Lou Henry and Johnny Dangerously, and they want to hang shelf paper because shelf paper is awesome, which is a joke that pays off later. Right. And then – uh, Griffin Dunn figures out that Johnny uh, Michael Keaton's Johnny Dangerously, and he comes downstairs and he says, "I'm going to bring you down." And he says, "Well, let's fight for it. If I, if if Michael Keaton wins, he has to stop being the DA. If uh, Griffin Dunn wins, Johnny Dangerously has to stop being a criminal." So in the end, uh, uh, Michael Keaton has a vision of his mother telling him take a dive, and Griffin Dunn like f- like knocks him out and says like, "Now you have to give up." being the, the 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 mobster so that that's when he goes back to talk to his men okay right so he's going to tell everyone that they're going to go straight everyone's smoking uh and this is when johnny dangerously pauses looks into the camera and delivers an anti-smoking psa but mm-hmm. more so to hammer home that the cigarette case that peter boyle gave him earlier in the film that stopped the bullet that he still has and instead of cigarettes inside it he has gum right Again, now the movie's getting a little bit more lean, and all these little references are paying off. Right. But we're less than 30 minutes left in the movie, so we got to, like, wrap everything up, right? Sure. So, uh, Johnny Dangerously, go. he's going to go uh, in and turn, he's going to turn himself in, right? Mm-hmm. But before he gets there, Joe Piscopo is there, ends up killing, what, the police chief? Somebody important, right, right, yeah. and framing Johnny Dangerously for this. Right. And there's a racist cleaning woman outside <laughs> who sees the whole thing. Which, to me, has a subtle gag, too, where she has, like, the most ludicrous name. 
So like later, cause like in the movies, whenever it's like, all right, you, cause they, they set it up that she, the Joe Pishpo says, go up and clean the room. So she'll find the, the body and or get Johnny arrested. And it costs like what? $17,000. Well, okay. Before that, he says, Hey lady, got a proposition for you. And she <laughs> says something to the effect of, yeah, I'll take One the of- both is. One at a time or both at once. Right. And they just, and great gag, and they just barrel <laughs> through it. And I loved it. I love, like, you don't, a gag like that from a character like this, you don't acknowledge. Right. So she has one of those weird names. So later on, when the DA says it to somebody else. Right. That, like, you immediately know who it is. That happens in all movies. It's never like, do you remember a, a person by the name of John Smith? It's like, no, it's like Mary Catherine, you know, Jesse, and it just goes on. And I'm like, I get why they're doing this and it pays off later. Right. So she gets 17 grand to not say anything about it, which again, that also comes and pays off a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Mary Lou Henner comes down to post bail, but because he, uh, killed whomever it was, police chief or whatever it is, uh, they, there's no bail set for him. Also want to mention, uh, the person at the police desk, in a common at the time, give me a role where I don't have to stand up. Alan Hale Jr. is there. <laughs> right. Who is the king of those roles? Cause Gilligan, I- Gilligan's Island was in high heavy rotation in syndicated TV at that time. So he was a very familiar face. And I'm sure Alan Hale was an old man who wanted money, but he also didn't want to stand up. <laughs> he was no Rory Calhoun. That's right. Uh, so. Obviously, no one believes Johnny that he didn't kill this guy, and Griffin Dunn is like, well, I'm going to take you down. You know, this is the way that you're going to turn straight. I don't think so, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they bump into Joe Piscopo in the courtroom, and he has uh, Johnny's cigarette case, which we established four scenes earlier, and when they framed him for the deal, Joe Piscopo took the cigarette case off him. Right. So now Griffin Dunn sees this, puts it together, knows that his brother was framed. This literally takes up, like, that whole plot synopsis takes up, like, six minutes in the movie. Again, at this last, like, 25 minutes, we're moving at a breakneck pace, right? Right. Now the pacing is fine. Right. Johnny's in prison, and then you get a bunch of gags of, like, people talking to each other behind the glass or through the chain link fence or whatever the hell it is, right? I, my favorite gag is that he's a star and like the warden loves him. Yeah. And he's introducing him and, uh, who's it? It's not Eugene Levy. It's, uh, uh, Joe Flaherty. A, Joe Flaherty comes walking down the hall to go to the, to the electric uh, chair and he's like, Hey, he's talking to the guards. The warden's like, Hey, it's Johnny Dangerously. Oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And Flaherty's like, we doing this or what? Which is like that cracked me up as a great gag. Like, hurry up, we got to get to the electric chair. Right. I don't know. I just found that funny. So they get the plan to have Mary Lou Henner fake that she's with Joe Piscopo to find out what his plan is. Mm-hmm. And if, and, or the, we know that he's going to kill Griffin Dunn, but it's mm-hmm. the when and the how, right? Right. So Mary Lou Henner fakes that she's with Joe Piscopo. Doesn't let anyone in on the plan so she could find out what the plan is. Gets this information back to Johnny. Now, Johnny has to plan a daring police escape uh, with the parrot because she sends the parrot back to prison to send this message to him. Right. And they do the game of what are they? I forget what they call it in the movie, but it's something. Grapevine. 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 So by the time he gets down the grapevine, uh, it's completely kerfuffled like a purple monkey dishwasher thing from The Simpsons. Right. 
And but Johnny knows exactly what it is. He's like, I, I've, I've been down this grapevine before, right? Right. And I just want to say on the grapevine, Joe, if you if you go like you watch the scene again, the second guy in the grapevine, the parrot comes, tells somebody, and then it goes to the second guy, famous actor. Uh, he's the guy who played the janitor Art on Night Court for the like the last two seasons. Do you remember him? Oh yeah, super famous guy. Right, no, he's just a nobody, but I remember him like, hey, that's Art the Janitor from Night Court. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm looking at it now. He played a bunch of people. Right. So another good gag in the prison is, of course, Johnny's outfit is a little bit different than everybody else's. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone's kind of got, like, a wider pinstripe with a lighter blue color. Right. Johnny's got a thinner pinstripe with a darker blue color. Mm -hmm. He's also wearing a kerchief. (laughs) <laughs> and while everyone else is eating, like, typical prison gruel, Johnny in the 1930s, whatever, is eating sushi. Right. Well, that's the way it's in all gangster movies. When you're the head gangster and you go to jail, it's like going to Club Med, Joe. Right. But that's the thing is it's <laughs> everyone else is, like, he's just in general pop. And it's like this most extravagant thing of sushi, right? Mm-hmm. So Johnny goes crazy, he starts attacking a cop, he starts doing his acrobatics again to get away from the cops, and this is so he could rush uh, his trip to the electric chair, right? Right, the plan of the escape. Plan of the escape. So, as they have done, I'm sure, dozens of times, if not hundreds of times in other mobster movies, as he's going down the long aisle of the, the electric chair, other people in the cells along the way are giving him pieces of a gun. Mm-hmm. And obviously this is going to be the gun that he uses for his escape. Only problem is Johnny doesn't know how to put a gun together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> While the guy who's helping him is, is a, one of the monsters is a priest and he's doing fake Latin, which cracks me up. He's right. like, omnibus. I missed the bus. You missed the bus. <laughs> we all have to wait for the next bus. I guess. <laughs> A bunch of great gags, subtle <laughs> gags. I loved it all. Right. So we find out that where Joe Piscopo is going to kill the brother is at the big debut premiere of the uh, James Cagney James movie. Cagney movie. Now uh, Bob Eubanks is working the red carpet of this uh, <laughs> of this premiere as well. Right. And like I guess it's just supposed to be Bob Eubanks. They never acknowledge that it is or isn't. Right. Just famous announcer. Just famous announcer. Sure. Uh, so Johnny's on a timetable. He's got to get out of the prison. He's got to get there to save his brother because, uh, Joe Piscopo is going to shoot him when Cagney buys it in the movie. Spoilers, everybody. <laughs> so as Johnny, Mary Lou Henner, and the fake priest are making their escape, Alan Hale Jr. keeps sending out an APB that Johnny is an accom- and his accomplice- accomplices are in this sort of car dressed this sort of way. So mm-hmm. the aforementioned shelf paper gag comes back as they start peeling off the different layers of shelf paper to make the car look different and putting on different outfits to kind of throw things off. But no matter what they do, Alan Hale Jr. is one step ahead of them. Whether their car is covered in baby ducks or whether they're dressed like nuns or fishermen or whatever the hell it is that they're dressed as. Again, <laughs> great dumb gag. One of the One of the gags that went on too long that I enjoyed. Right. My favorite is Alan Hale Jr. at the end. He's like, get a load of this, boys. Now they're in a blue car. They're in a, they're dressed as none in a blue car with little duckies and bunnies on it. 
everybody down to O'Malley's. I'm buying. <laughs> I don't know. I just, to me, I love that. So, uh, Michael Keaton makes it there in time, right as Joe Piscopo is about to shoot. He jumps in front of the bullet to stop, uh, it from hitting his brother. He's got the cigarette case back, so the cigarette case stops the bullet again, of course. Joe Piscopo goes off to jail, and Johnny goes straight. We flash back to our scene here, back in current daytime, where he's at the, uh, the pet store telling the kid that crime doesn't pay, and then he changes out of his waiter outfit into a tuxedo, Gets into a fancy car with Mary Lou Henner fancied all up, and then says, uh, maybe crime does pay. And then that's the end of the movie. He says, it, maybe it pays a little. Just a little. He had a little left over to live on. I guess. So I gotta look up that Schlitz commercial. But again, all in all, I'm kind of ragging on the movie a little bit. Wasted potential. Right. This movie could have been another airplane, another naked gun type film that people hear now some 30 years later 35 years later whatever the hell it is still talk about and remember fondly but i think it just came out at the wrong time and the 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 gags were just a little all over the place there was no consistency they couldn't find their groove on the gags right and one thing that i want to talk about is michael keaton in this as we both said is fantastic his comedy timing at this time is amazing um with all with all the other movies that he did but he falls into the category of like we talked about when we did dragnet on this show uh we talked about how we miss tom hanks doing all that like as great as an actor is he did some great comedy early in his career and i feel that michael keaton is the same way and I'm like, you know what my dream, like, I'm dream booking a movie in the 1980s. Okay. It's Michael Keaton and Tom Hanks together at their prime, right? Two hijinks guys who get together and they realize that they need a mentor for whatever the plot of the movie is. Uh, you know, add plot, like they're football players, they're starting a business. It doesn't matter. And they go see their mentor at the time, uh, Rodney Dangerous, uh, Dangerfield. Get the three of them in 1980, like five. Like 1980, in a movie. 80, that's a 1983 home run film. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing? Like, because like all three of them, they all have like that manicness to yeah. them. Like Keaton has that like oh like he's always like bobbing his head like see what's going on here, and Tom Hanks kind of had the same thing at the time and then rodney was just an older version of all that like like oh look look at this kind of a thing i don't get no respect right you put all three of them in a movie like back to school bachelor party and johnny dangerously just mash them all together right but the the title of the movie needs to be like generic enough like it needs to be like goofing around or something like that (laughs) you know like the title tells you nothing about the movie no idea what the plot is it's just like here are these three guys that you know from other things and they're gonna be doing stuff right the three of them on the movie poster and it just says tripping up (laughs) right (laughs) or wackiness ensues or some shit Mm -hmm. like that you know it's like uh michael keaton has this idea and he goes to tom hanks and they they don't they're butt heads but then they go to uh, rodney and it's just like that's all you need and that's that's money 
Money in the bank, the money bank. Right, so. like, and the, and the trailer, it's like, it's not even like calling them by their character names. It's like, Michael Keaton does this. Tom <laughs> Hanks disagrees. But then when Rodney Dangerfield gets involved, it's all wackiness abounds. Mm-hmm. Rated PG-13. It's, this, it th- opens this Friday. You know, that's, like, there's your 15 second trailer that's on TV. You see that, you're like, I'm going to that movie. I don't need right. to know anything else. It's like, Michael Keaton's a gambler. Uh, you know, uh, see, that's too much Tom- effort, like, ga- ga- that's too much plot already. Is it in the trailer? I, I, we don't need to know that. It's, oh, uh, see, <laughs> I was you get going the movie, for, you bog it down with plot, you stretch it out to 82 <laughs> minutes, you throw a goofy credit sequence on at the beginning and the end, you're at 90 minutes, you have an, a, a nice 1984, $14 million opening weekend on a movie that cost you under a million dollars, and you retire famous, you know? See, I was going for a gambling motif where Keaton, Hanks, and uh, Dangerfield are all in there, and then at the end, when like, and then when they meet Rodney, all bets are off, and that's the name of the movie. Oh, now see, that's just enough of a plot, (laughs) right? Where like the name, so the name of the movie is "All Bets Are Off," and you're working it to the tagline of the trailer. All right, see. See that that's why that's why when when we get the writing credit on this movie in 1983 your name will be first. Okay. Well, it's also because I'm alphabetically before you. Ah. Roker before Spoh. Well, I would have taken a few ex, a few less points on the back end so I can get my name above you on the credits, but Oh, uh, as long as I'm above the title, that's all I care about. <laughs> I don't care if I'm above your name as long as I'm above the title. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just want to do, like Sean Connery said, I just want to do a movie where I'm uh, not James Bond. Uh-huh. How about a movie where you're Gandalf? No, I don't want to do that. How about a movie where you're in The Matrix? No, I don't want to do that. How about a movie where you play a famous book person? What was the character he played? Alan Quartermain. Alan Quartermain. All right, I'll do that one. And, and I'll end my career on that high note. And you get to wear a wig. Oh, I already wear a wig. Maybe he can go back to Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, if they can get him back, and oh my goodness! All right, all right. I think we should stop there. It's you have. It's been a great show, and you have plenty of editing to do. Oh Jesus fucking Christ! <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, highly recommend checking out uh, Johnny Dangerously here. And the one last bit of trivia, Todd, mm-hmm. I want to mention to you. I don't know if you snooped around on the Imdba trivia on this. No. Uh, World Wrestling Entertainer Paul Heyman used to be called Paulie Dangerously early in his career because of his resemblance to Michael Keaton in this film. I highly think that's highly dubious. <laughs> I think this, this is absolutely where Paul stole the name from. I don't think it's because he looked like no, Michael Keaton. No, no. If by the I, fact that he was like a kind of balding guy in a suit... Mm-hmm. In his mid twenties, then yes, but I think it was just Paul was like, "Allow me this volley, sir. Mm-hmm. I look like Michael Keaton, star of the silver screen. I'm going to be named either Mr. Mom or Johnny Dangerously, or Paul E. Dangerously." All I know is, why are you doing a Heath Ledger? Ah, joke? come on! And he does look a little bit like Michael Keaton. You know, if Michael now? Keaton was in a coal mine oh. on a cloudy night during an eclipse. <laughs> As viewed by Ray Walston's character in the film. Right, the early scene. Yes. Oh, boy. So, 
Thanks, everyone, for listening. We got one more movie left for this year's project. I think it was a success. I would say, Todd, uh, this now has topped, uh, outside of you stealing Dragnet from me, uh, this has topped your list of picks for the year. Oh, fantastic. Right. Fantastic. I can't wait for Jim Cotta. Oh, my goodness. Uh, starring Mr. Cotta. See, I, you're, you're very lucky that I'm so OCD that, like, this movie, the last movie that I have for you, you is, is set in stone. It's set in stone. Because just in the last week, I've thought of, like, three other movies that I'd love to give you. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, nope, I can't. I can't change it, you know? My list has changed a thousand times, so. All right. And Johnny Dangerously was a, was an audible at, at there because oh. I could tell you what some of the other ones were. But, oh, okay. Um, obviously one of them was uh, Multiplicity. Mm-hmm. The other one was Flash Gordon. Oh, Flash Gordon. I think Flash like, Gordon was like an also ran on my list as well. I love Flash Gordon. I mean, that's that's kind and of then a we tip that it's not. Afterwards. Yeah, one of my movies. What I said that's kind of a tip that it's not my last movie. That I said that it right. was an alternate on mine. I was trying to think of what some of the other ones were, but, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to do something with Michael Keaton because I figure he's like, like, I think his, like, comedy stuff is forgotten about too because he's, you know, gotten bigger since he played the vulture in Spider-Man. Right. So. And he's playing like a something in the upcoming, uh, shitty, uh, Dumbo remake. Oh, really? Operation Dumbo Drop? Yeah. Two? Electric Boogaloo? No, not Dumbo Drop Two, goddammit. All right, let's actually end it there. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, Longboxheroes.com. I don't say it enough on this show, but thanks to everyone uh, who does the Amazon click-throughs, especially, you know, those of you who did your uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all that shit shopping uh, with (laughs) us here. Uh, You know, I know there's people out there that listen to both shows. I know there's people out here on podcast land that only listen to this show. So I, I would be remiss not to thank you guys as well for whatever purchases you've made through the uh, Amazon click-through. I thank you, too. Right. So uh, we'll catch you all here next week for uh, Longbox Heroes After Dark number 211. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, everybody.